Welcome to our continued look at the Race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast in the arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simmendinger. In the final 20 days of the election, our reporters and editors will take three more Thursdays to examine election developments and the shifting battlegrounds as the unprecedented 2016 election cycle nears its close. Real Clear's polling analyst David Byler interviewed Doug Rivers, Stanford University political science professor and chief scientist with YouGov, a community of 4 million people worldwide who share their views. David talked with Rivers about online polling and what his data tells us about the 2016 elections. And in our Newsmaker segment this week, I asked Michael McDonald, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Florida and an expert on early voting, to identify which of the presidential candidates is likely to benefit most from the millions of ballots cast before November 8th. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com. First up, you'll hear from David Byler, who discussed online polling with Stanford's Doug Rivers. So this week we have Dr. Doug Rivers on the show. Dr. Rivers is a professor at Stanford University. He is a fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is the chief scientist at YouGov, who's a really great pollster. If you look at our averages, you've probably seen them in there. So we're going to talk today about polling. And thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Rivers. Nice to be here. Great. So last week, we had someone you might know on the show. We had Patrick Murray from Monmouth on. And we talked a little bit about the traditional sort of uh, methods of polling. He uses a list-based sample of people who have voted in the past. Um, and so our listeners, if you've listened to that or if you you know just are up on polls, know generally how those go in terms of sampling people randomly, trying to get a group that approximates whatever the population you're trying to measure is, whether that's the country, the electorate, what have you. But at YouGov, uh, you guys do things a little bit differently in terms of your methods for contacting people and how you find them and how they fill out their surveys and what happens at your polling firm. So I would just be interested, first off, in just a compare and contrast with what makes YouGov stand out from other polling outfits? And sort of what are the pros and cons of that and how that sort of affects your final product? Well, first, we're an online pollster. So all of our interviews are conducted online uh, through a web browser, uh, not by calling people up. Um, the uh, challenge for online polling uh, is how do you uh, reach people? Uh, so unlike uh, uh, calling people on the telephone, uh, you can't do random digit dialing. Uh, and uh, most of the people on the voter list are not easily accessible to us online. So what we've done at YouGov is to recruit uh, hundreds of thousands of people who are willing to take home. Uh, when the people we recruit are not randomly selected. Uh, they respond to Internet ads. Uh, they're a diverse uh, group of people, but they uh, have various skews that make them unrepresentative of the population. So uh, what we do is, uh, from those hundreds of thousands of people that we have accessible, we select a sample that's designed to be representative of the population uh, of American voters, and we select them on a fairly large number of variables, much a much wider range than are uh, traditionally used uh, to weight telephone samples, which incidentally aren't very representative either. Mm-hmm. Um, 
reliability and validity of our results depends upon us um, choosing people in such a way that we remove the skews um, in the set of people who choose to participate in our service. Um, so we fix things like demographics, age, race, gender, education. Uh, but we fix a wider range of variables that we've found over the years um, affect participation in online surveys. Um, and in particular, one that we've uh, aggressively used this year is past vote history, whether you voted uh, and how you voted in the past. Uh, and together, these things seem to remove the um, selection bias that occurs in volunteering to participate in an online panel couple of quick follow-ups on that. Um, so you talked about an online panel and you have this large pool of people um, that you draw from on it. About how often do you recontact those people? And I'm asking this because, you know, you wonder if someone gets recontacted really, really frequently, are they going to start watching news differently or not? Or maybe, maybe that's not the case, or maybe you don't recontact them frequently enough. And then um, the other thing that I was going to ask about is actually you, you sort of anticipated one of my upcoming questions, which is about non-probability samples and about sort of how, how you deal with that. Because um, our, some of our listeners may know this and some of our listeners may not, is that, you know, mathematically, if you have random distributions and you're able to pull people out of the population truly at random, you get a lot of... Uh, nice sort of math that falls out of that, and you're able to calculate margin of error and things like that more easily. So, um, yeah, just details on the panel itself and anything else that you'd want to talk about with relationship to probability versus non-probability sampling and that sort of thing would be appreciated. How many hours do you have? There? <laughs> uh, the, I, I think the average frequency we talk to people is three or four times a month. But those are mostly not political polls. Hmm. Uh, the bulk of our business is market research, and we ask you what you think of brands and what products you've bought and things like that. Um, so one of the reasons people join our panel, among other things, is that we do do public opinion and research for universities and polls for media organizations and so forth. Um, there is a... Uh, a con- uh, a fairly heated debate uh, among the polling community about so-called non-probability samples. Uh, so let's start with what's a probability sample. Uh, a probability sample is where every member of the population has a known positive uh, probability of responding to the survey. Uh, unfortunately, uh, not no media poll has anything that even approximates a probability sample. Um, hmm. but, uh, if you do random digit dialing, you're going to have to dial these days close to 30 phone numbers to get one respondent. Um, so the claim that you know that the people have known probabilities of selection is, is nuts in this world. Um, so uh, I think everybody is doing non-probability sampling in the polling world these days. Um, the the question is whether you do it well or poorly. Um, poorly is just hoping that things will balance out. Um, if you call people up on the telephone uh, and uh, you you'll end up with samples uh, if you randomly pick people within households uh, that are overwhelming. 
female, uh, which obviously doesn't represent the population. Mm -hmm. We get very few younger people uh, because um, younger people certainly aren't reachable on landlines these days. Uh, Something like two-thirds of the people under age 30 don't have a landline telephone. So most of the good telephone calls, and there are good telephone calls, um, uh, now call uh, 50, 60% of their people on cell phones. Um, The problem is uh, younger uh, voters aren't that interested in taking a survey on their cell phone uh, any more than they are on a landline. Um, So you get age skews. Um, All these things have to be fixed. Uh, The big difference is the point at which you fix the SKUs in your sample. Uh, If you're doing a telephone survey, what you do is um, you select with some uh, element of random selection initially um, who to contact. Uh, The people choose to respond, um, and the respondents you get uh, are... Uh, have skews, typically age, education, race, gender, all of those things can be skewed, and you attempt to fix it by waiting. Uh, so, for example, if you get, you know, uh, three times as many people over 65 as you should, um, you're going to downweight those groups uh, by one-third, mm-hmm. and the groups that are underrepresented, you will wait up. Um, and so... Uh, the sort of weights you need these days in the telephone polling are on the order of, of 10, um, which means that one person's uh, chosen to represent 10 others. Uh, what we do, because we have a panel of people, is we can pre-select people based on their characteristics. And the goal is to end up with a sample that is selected to be representative of the needs less weighting. Um, which is one advantage of uh, the approach that we use. Um, I could go on for this forever, but um, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding of how we've performed in the past, uh, and we've done uh, quite well uh, in uh, recent elections. Um, you know, we started in 2006 in the U.S., um, and we've hit you know, the outcome of uh, every presidential election within uh, roughly a, a point of the outcome. Uh, we've uh, done hundreds of uh, Senate gubernatorial races, um, and uh, you know, the level of accuracy has uh, been as good or better than anybody who does that quantity of polling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really helpful, and that actually leads into um, the part you're talking about with the weights especially, uh, leads into something else that I wanted to talk about um, with weighting. So you just explained it a little bit, that essentially if you are grabbing people through whatever your means are, online or phone, or selecting them from your uh, batch of people that you have that you can take them out of online, that uh, you apply weights and you say, one person counts for X number of people so that your sample ends up looking like the country or the electorate or or what have you. So let's take an example for, of a poll. Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, YouGov did a Nevada poll recently that had Clinton up six. I'm just wondering how much uh, weight stretching, so to speak, 
would it take to uh, sort of change those results significantly? And I'm just curious uh, about two things specifically. You know, how much would you have to uh, relax or stretch your weights in order to change something like a Clinton plus six victory in the state to maybe a tie or a Trump plus one? And also, how much you would have to do to make it a Clinton landslide, something on the order of plus 10 or plus 12? Would that be something that you'd have to do, you know, complete violence to your weights in order to get? Or um, I'm trying to get a sense of uh, if you had different other reasonable choices of weights, what the range of results are given your raw data. You know, how sensitive are the results to weighting? Uh, our goal is to have results that are not sensitive to weighting at all. Yeah. Because if all the weights are close to one, uh, they don't make much difference. Uh, the problem occurs in situations where you've got significant skews in the sample um, so that you need uh, you know, big weight to correct uh, sample biases. So uh, you, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times uh, last week uh, by Nate Cohn about mm-hmm. the uh, USC Dornsife, uh, uh panel, which is another internet panel. It's actually a probability-based panel, I believe. Um, that is, the initial selection is done at Uh, 
wasn't all I, I wasn't involved in the waiting of that, so I can't answer mm-hmm. your question on that one. With reasonable quality sample and uh, reasonable waiting procedures, uh, it should certainly be the case that the weights will not move the results around more than um, a couple points. If it does more than that, then I feel like uh, you're no longer polling, you're uh, making your own guess as to what the outcome is. YouGov, like you said, has done a lot online and um, you know, I mean, I've noticed this pop up. I'm sure that you and a lot of our readers have also noticed this is that there's a number of different sort of theories floating around about kind of undetected Trump voters. That is people who, for whatever reason, aren't being picked up by the polls. Maybe um, they're not being contacted or they're not, you know, picking up the phone if a telephone poll is Uh, calling them or something or other. And this kind of argument takes multiple forms depending on uh, who's saying it. But the general thrust is usually that there's uh, some amount of Trump support that's undetected. And one specific variety of this that I'm interested in asking you about um, is some people claim that uh, there's kind of a social bias involved. That is, if uh, somebody's getting polled and there's a live person on the other end, that somebody who supports Trump might say they don't know or they support Clinton or they support Johnson because they feel a sort of social pressure or a stigma and they don't want this poll interviewer to, to judge them. And uh, usually the second part of this argument is that, you know, if polls didn't have some other person on the other end, so if it was maybe an online poll that uh, you would see a greater amount of Trump support. So since you do online polls... I'm interested in if you've seen that. And so if you could speak to that sort of part of the kind of undetected Trump voter uh, series of arguments. And uh, if you want, uh, you can talk about any of the other ones as well. So every candidate that's losing in the poll believes that there's a mass of people who uh, aren't responding to the polls. Right. Uh, And I normally uh, discount it. Um, So... uh, in the case of the uh, recent Brexit uh, referendum in the UK, uh, where uh, the polls were significantly off, there was a big gap between online polls and uh, live interview or telephone polls. Um, that is, that the socially respectable answer, the one that uh, you know, certainly in uh, elite circles everyone expected was that people were going to vote against Brexit. And that did much better in the uh, polls with live interviewers than they did in the online polls. In our online polls, actually, the uh, pre-election estimates were quite good. Uh, we were off by only uh, about a point on that. Oh, wow. Um, so that obviously made me quite nervous. Is there a similar problem uh, with Trump voters? Uh, that uh, you know, if you hang around Stanford, you don't run into a lot of Trump voters. Sure. Uh, and, but clearly, there are a whole bunch of people out there quite excited and going to vote for him. Um, so, do we have social desirability bias? Um, it's practically impossible to answer that question. Um, what I do know is that uh, you get differential response rates over the course of the campaign. So, for example, a week ago, Saturday, um, the day after the uh, Trump uh, tape had been released, um, what we found was the people who previously told us they were voting for Trump 
had a five percent uh, lower response rate than mm. uh, people who had told us before they were voting for Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and surpri- to our surprise, we found of the people who were willing to talk to us, uh, there was essentially no movement from Trump to Clinton or even Trump to undecided. Uh, the Trump voters that we talked to on that day uh, were staying put. Um, if you had just taken our uh, the people who responded and ignored the fact that previously we'd had uh, more Trump supporters than in that day's sample, you would have said, wow, there was a big movement here. Uh, just like after the first presidential debate in 2012, there was a, a seemingly huge uh, bump for Mitt Romney. Uh, but in fact, in our surveys, we're, we looked at re-interviews same people in 2012 as in last Saturday, we didn't find any movement. Um, and so what you're seeing in a lot of the polls is people are moving in and out of the sample. Uh, and I think it's less to do with social desirability bias than if it's a bad day for your candidate, which obviously last Saturday was a very bad day for Donald Trump, um, you probably don't want to uh, think about discussing politics with anybody and you're less likely to survey. Um, but what we try to do, again, is to control the composition of the sample to take out that kind of noise. Uh, but, you know, is there just an overall reluctance of Trump voters to answer surveys? I don't know. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, thank you for that. And uh, so next question, um, we're going to talk uh, a little bit, we're going to kind of rewind uh, a bit to the 2016 primaries and talk a little bit about uh, both parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, and sort of where things stand. And since uh, the Republicans seem to have uh, a number of issues in terms of infighting and turmoil and things like that, we'll uh, we'll start with them. So uh, basically, the primary sort of on its face seemed to reveal Uh, at least three different factions within the Republican Party. You had sort of uh, Trump with some of the more populist types. You had Cruz with the religious right. You had uh, Kasich and Rubio with sort of affluent suburbanite types. And these aren't necessarily hard and fast categories. And there was, you know, bleeding and overlap and switching between the three. But um, sort of the face of the 2016 primary seemed to uh, reveal at least those splits. So what I'm wondering is, in your polling, uh, are there splits beneath beneath that that you saw, or maybe one of those uh, breakages wasn't really as hard as people think it is, or um, things along that line? Uh, if you have any uh, clues about what the size of sort of the different internal factions are, um, that would be interesting to sort of uh, get a sense of what the coalition looks like, what sort of a person could lead it in the future? Is it destined to be a Trump-type person? Could somebody else win it? Things along those lines. You know, the outbreak of populism, the angry voter, that was very evident uh, in the spring and continues today. Um, you do find that uh, if you looked at Republican uh, primary voters who are on average uh, more affluent than average American, uh, They divided um, very much between people who said they were doing well and ones that were doing poorly. Um, And the ones that were doing poorly broke heavily for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
And so that appears to be the, you know, Trump uh, did have a message that worked for white working class voters who traditionally aren't big Republican primary voters. Um, it, it, if uh, the Republican primary electorate had been uh, restricted to people who said they were better off financially uh, today than they were a year ago, um, John Kasich would have uh, won a majority of the vote. Mm. The problem is that, on the whole, Republican primary voters are very negative on the state of the economy. Yeah. Uh, and Trump appealed to that with its sort of dark vision of you know, us being overrun by criminals, immigrants, uh, terrorists, whatever. Right. Uh, on the Democratic side, you had a sort of weaker version of that, uh, that the Sanders voters, uh, at least in terms of making things were headed in the wrong direction, the economy was bad, being angry. Uh, they looked like the Trump voters, though, you know, obviously they differ quite a bit on, uh, on immigration, uh, though they agreed on trade. Um, the problem for Trump as a matter of strategy is if you take a white working class male, which we define roughly as people who don't have a college degree, uh, they're white male, they're about 20% of the electorate in 2012, and we'll be around that this year. That's not a big enough base to build a whole campaign on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Trump uh, has needed to reach out to uh, working-class women, uh, which is a group he actually has started to do better on. There's not a huge gender gap among working-class women. It's uh, college-educated women where there's a massive gender gap. Um it's also the case that um, he's managed to uh, bring back uh, you know, traditional Republican voters, the, the evangelicals, um, uh, for example. Uh, in the spring, it looked like a disaster for Trump, that only about 70% of Republicans said they would vote for him. Uh, but he's edged up to the point where he's about 90%, which um, is a little low, but not uh, terrible. Um, the uh, problem I see is that he hasn't done uh, this point you know, he's stuck at about 40% as, uh, as much of the electorate as uh, say they'll vote for him and the turn his campaign has taken in recent weeks pretty much means that all uh, that's going to vote for him uh, so he hasn't really widened uh, his, uh, his base the way he needs Great. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. And I kind of wanted to ask the basically the same question about the Democratic Party as well and about their coalition, because you mentioned this a little bit in your answer about uh, the Republicans, about the Sanders supporters and how they feel about trade and immigration. But because there were only two candidates, it seemed as if uh, the primary results themselves uh, didn't illuminate all the different uh, parts and all the different uh pieces of the Democratic coalition. So if you could talk a little bit about uh, what you saw in the 2016 primary, what, I don't know uh, how it exactly phrase it, maybe what the coalition building um, hid, the different parts of Hillary Clinton's coalition, and if there was one more than one part of Sanders' coalition, uh, what that might have been, and uh, how that looks going forward into the future, into uh, 2020 and beyond. Yeah, so uh, where Clinton did really badly with millennials, um, she consistently did bad 
typically among both uh, male and female uh, under age 30. Uh, and uh, her support came from uh, older voters and minorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2008, uh, Obama uh, won uh you know, the minority vote overwhelmingly against Clinton. But this year, um, that was where she meant, if she hadn't had minority vote, uh, she would have been toast. Um, so the, you know, the difficulty for her is that she doesn't seem to, or at least personally, she doesn't seem to evoke the sort of response that Obama did among younger voters. Um, and, uh, the fact that Sanders uh, uh, in his 70s was able to win that vote right. shows that uh, you know, she hadn't had the weaknesses that she had. Uh, she could be running away with this watch. The inability to really get a positive response from younger voters has left uh, Democratic voters somewhat under-energized. I usually end with kind of the same question that's about uh, the long-term trajectory up to this point and the long-term trajectory going forward of whatever we're talking about. But um, I'm going to tweak the question a little bit uh, this week so as to avoid giving you the same question as we gave to uh, Patrick Murray last week. So um, what I'm interested in to ask you about is the short-term future in terms of polling and in terms of what it's going to look like in the next five or ten years, and specifically what I'm thinking of, and you can tell me if I'm thinking of a, a irrelevant issue and there's something else you want to bring up, but specifically what I'm thinking of is, uh, you know, landline responses are down, online polling firms like YouGov uh, are really taking off and really doing a good job, um, and uh, I've heard things about potentially doing text-based polling at some time in the future, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what polling will look like in five years or 10 years, what those changes will be, and also what the challenges will be as uh, things transition over time. Yes, I'm willing to bet that uh, you're not going to be uh, calling people on their phone uh, in five or 10 years. Uh, the, the day of uh, calling somebody on their phone number and uh, is not the way people want to be contacted. Uh, they find it annoying, and uh, the regulation is restricting it significantly. Um, having said that, uh, the universal device that people have is a smartphone. Uh, oddly, you know, the phone is probably going to be the least important aspect of the device that you carry around. But um, you know, so I believe in the end it has to be uh, smartphone based uh, what form that'll take uh, is hard to predict at this point so uh, at, at the moment most online polling is done via email and through a web browser uh, but the number of you know, 95% of the population has a cell phone and those are rapidly all becoming smartphones um, so they're bunch of different ways you could uh, reach people on uh, their mobile device. Uh, what, you know, Facebook, apps, uh, uh, you know, I suppose you could even call them or text them. Um, but I, I think in the end we're going to find that 
people expect the um, the intrusion of phone attacks to be limited to the uh, relationship they previously consented to. Mm. Um, so the polling world's got to get used to the fact that uh, you have to find a way to get people to cooperate with you. You can't use the old-style methods of calling somebody uh, at the dinner hour because that's when you expect them to be at home and think that they're going to respond to that. The new world uh, has uh, different expectations of privacy and control of uh, uh, individuals over uh, when and how they're reached. Um, This is really uh, apparent in Europe, and I think it's going to be a movement uh, in America as well. And finally, I'll ask University of Professor Political Scientist Michael McDonald how the growing trend of early voting altered modern political campaigns forever. We're talking to Michael McDonald, the Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Florida and an expert on early voting, someone I turned to in 2012 and, and we all turned to again in 2016. Professor, let me ask you first, could you tell us uh, those of us who are not initiated, what is an early voter? Who is an early voter? Can you describe who or what that person is? Well, of course, we have laws in the United States that permit people to cast ballots prior to Election Day. It wasn't until um, 1980 that California had adopted no-excuse absentee voting. Prior to that, states would allow people who had you know, reasonable excuses, like being away at, in the military, uh, overseas, traveling, um, infirm, you know, uh, any, way, any reason why a person couldn't make it to the polling location, um, the states allowed people to cast uh, excuse-required absentee ballots. But in 1980, California expanded that to no-excuse absentee voting. And there was, there's been a lot of movement, primarily in the West, although there are some uh, eastern states that have adopted various forms of mail balloting, no-excuse mail balloting as well. Um, permanent absentee ballot status was another innovation out in the, in, in the West. Uh, and then we saw states like Oregon, Washington, and Colorado um, start sending absent mail ballots to all of their registered voters. And although they, they, they do cast by mail, that how actually it works out there is that uh, um, people can drop their ballots off at special drop boxes. So you can return your ballot by mail, or you could do it um, sort of like a drive-through um, voting, if you wish. Uh, in Colorado, there's also in-person early voting locations where people can go and vote in person if that's the way they wish to vote. Um, and they do have same-day registration in those polling places as well for people who are not registered. Now, that in-person early voting is really more of an Eastern phenomenon. It started in the mid-1990s in Texas and uh, and Tennessee and Florida, all in 1996, adopted in-person early voting, where, where there are special polling locations outside of the election offices that um, the election officials have, where people can go and cast their ballot early in person. Now, as I've sort of laid out the contours here, there are some people who find themselves in a situation where they need to cast an early vote. They, they are not going to be um, at a pl- location where they can go to their, uh, their, their polling place on Election Day and, um, and vote in person on Election Day. So there's one group of people. The other people, because of all these various options that are available to folks across the country, these are people who are um, behavioral early voters. They are making a choice to vote early. And when we look at the, the behavior of early voting, 
there's, there's a certain ebb and flow to the way in which um, early voting happens um, across the country. So, generally, so now we have to ask the question, if we're talking about early voting being a behavior, behavior and a choice, why do people um, actually cast that ballot? Well, it's because people have made up their mind, and we can see this in the data, that the very first people who cast early votes are people who have a, a very strong history of voting in past elections. If a state has party registration, they're more likely to be registered with the political party. They look much older um, than other voters. And so on a lot of characteristics that we associate with someone who really follows politics closely, these are people who have, are high, highly informed about politics. They've made up their mind. They know who they're going to vote for, and so when the opportunity comes for them to cast their ballot, they feel comfortable and they go ahead and cast that ballot. As we get closer and closer to Election Day, what we're going to see is that um, more people who um, don't fit that profile of a highly uh, informed voter, people who don't vote in every election, who are younger, um, uh, who uh, don't necessarily affiliate with a political party, we'll see more of them uh, start voting, particularly in that last week before the election. So again, it looks like these people who don't follow politics as closely make up their mind later and they hold their ballots later until the, the point where they feel comfortable uh, casting their vote. And when we get to the end and you tally up all the data and we look at it, do we say that uh, the modern trend of early voting begins to encompass a, a broad spectrum of voters? In other words, it's men and women, it's older voters and younger voters, it's Democrats and Republicans and independents. Is it a, mi a mishmash of everybody? Yeah, the, the, when we get towards the end, yes, it's, uh, the early electorate will look much like the overall electorate, but there are some important differences. Um, we do tend to see that, um, again, the sort of ebb and flow of the, uh, the way in which early voting works, Republicans tend to vote by mail um, if there's an early voting option of both mail and in-person early voting. And then Democrats tend to vote in-person early. And we generally see then that in the sort of balance of the overall mix of the early vote, by the time we get to the end, there are more in-person early voters than male voters, and the early electorate is leaning towards the Democrats. Now, the election day voters tend to be somewhere in between the male voters and the male ballot voters and the um, in-person early voters. And so the election, election day voters will tend to look um, more Republican than the early vote, um, just as a consequence of who's really left to vote. So there's... Um, Yes, the early vote will look very similar to the electorate when we get to the end, but there's still a chance there at the, at the end that the um, Election Day electorate will look different than the early electorate. And we can actually see this in the data, by the way. There are some states that report their um, election results by method of voting, and you can actually see that the sum of the early vote does tend to break towards the Democrats, but then those Election Day votes tend to break a little bit back towards the Republicans. And this will lead me into questions I want to ask you in a minute, but based on the idea that early voting can be a, a behavioral choice, why is it that, say, a Republican wants to be the election day in-person voter, but a Democrat might be more likely to be the in-person early voter? That's a really great question, and there hasn't been a lot of um, survey data that I'm aware of where people ask why people are voting early. Um, we do ask the question in the surveys, um, have you voted early? But we don't ask people why did they make that choice to vote early. Um, here are just my 
thinking on it, and um, you know, of course, it, this is just my opinion. Part of it has to do with the fact that um, uh, you, you find people who have to work, and it's difficult for them to get off time, and so early voting provides a convenience to some people to cast a ballot at their discretion. And you might find that Democrats are um, more in a situation where it's more difficult for them to take off time on a weekday uh, to go vote. That they can make some other time at some other point to, to run that errand if they wish to do so, or vote by mail. Um, uh, so that could be one reason. Another reason that, that strikes me that's possible, because the, the coalitions are, are different, that we know that um, older people tend to vote, um, tend to associate with the Republican Party, and uh, younger people tend to associate with the Democratic Party, that um, there could be um, a learned behavior that um, you've always voted at your polling location, and gosh darn it, that's the way you, you vote, and so that's what you do. You go vote at your polling location on Election Day. But younger people who are exposed to these different options um, don't aren't as tied to that behavior, and it's not a learned habit behavior, and so they're more open to the idea of voting um, at a different time than just on Election Day. You've talked a lot and written about this growing trend, especially since 2004. And I remember talking to you that in 2008, early voting made up about, what, 30% of the ballots, uh, total ballots. And I was going to ask you, remind us, what was it in 2012? And can you tell us what would be the estimated or expected percentage? I know we don't know the total turnout, but it'll lead to a question in a second for 2016. Yeah, I might even anticipate what that question is going to be because there's some interesting trends that are going on in this election with the early voting. Um, so, but to look at the national numbers, um, uh, the Census Bureau conducts a survey and they ask people when did they vote. And so, and, and we've got a long time span of this going back to 72. So it's a good source of data on um, this early voting behavior. And you can see in, 19, in um, 2008, 30% uh, of uh, folks reported that they cast their ballot prior to Election Day. In 2012, it was 32%. And given that there's some more states coming online with early voting options or expanding their early voting options, I would not be surprised if we're sort of in, you know, in that upward trend that we might be somewhere around 36%, uh, excuse me, 34%. But that said, there are states that have um, very expansive early voting, and um, in some of the key battleground states, we're going to see early voting levels at 50 percent, maybe two-thirds or even higher, and those states would be places like Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Iowa, Colorado, Nevada, all will have very generous, very large numbers of their um, electorate voting prior to Election Day. There's one, I think, in critical battleground state that we'd also want to look at um, and think about is Pennsylvania. They still have excuse-required absentee voting, so we're only going to see a low single-digit usage of early voting in Pennsylvania. So the Election Day will really matter much more in Pennsylvania than it will, will matter in some of these other states. Uh, you and I have heard the Clinton campaign talk about the enthusiasm with which they're greeting the early voting. And uh, Secretary Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook, has suggested that already the Clinton campaign looks at the statistics and the data and believes that we're going to have historic turnout in this election. Do you agree that the data that you're looking at suggests that this is an election with historic voter turnout? Well, let me first address some other things about the early vote, because I've read those memos from the um, 
uh, the Clinton campaign, um, and I've been asked to fact-check them, unfortunately, which I don't particularly like fact-checking political candidates. Um, but um, that said, here's what I'm seeing in the early votes so far. Yes, I'm seeing that there's interest that's up in um, the eastern seaboard, places like Virginia, North Carolina, Florida. Um, the early voting numbers are running ahead of 2012, and particularly they're running ahead for Democrats. Republicans, if anything, are um, lagging slightly uh, their numbers in North Carolina and potentially Virginia, although we don't have party registration in Virginia. Um, Florida, they're up slightly, but again, we might have expected them to be up a little bit more in Florida given some changes to the laws in the state. Um, so Eastern Seaboard, the, the Democrats are rightfully crowing about their numbers and saying things look good for them. And, and if we look at the polling, that, you know, what we see is the early vote numbers tend to confirm what we see with the polling in, in that Clinton will do better than Obama uh, in 2012 if the election were held today, um, given both the polling numbers and the early voting numbers po pointing in the same direction. When we look, however, though, at other places, um, we're not seeing that el elsewhere. So in Iowa and in Ohio, um, these are states that, even though there's been this big shift towards Clinton nationally, the Ohio and Iowa numbers have not moved in, the, in that direction, um, at the poll numbers. And um, if anything, uh, we still see uh, the possibility that Trump will win Iowa, uh, even though um, uh, Obama won that state by about six percentage points in 2012. Now, Ohio is very close in the polling, um, but when I look at we can see some um, real patterns here where um, Democrats are not engaged at the same level that they were in 2012 in both Iowa and Ohio. So it's possible here that what's going on is that um, we're seeing some movement towards the Democrats in some places, and it's it's uh, and, and we can see that in the polling and the early voting voting numbers. But then we're seeing other parts of the country that are not moving in that same direction, and that's fascinating um, as some you know political observer. Because usually, like think about 2008, for example. Um, in 2008, when Obama won the country in 2008, this was a national swing election, and he was picking up states like Indiana, where Democrats don't normally win elections. And he picked up North Carolina, which again was unusual at the time. Um, this election, we're not seeing that big swing. Yes, we are seeing the swing in some states, even as Clinton numbers go up nationally, but there are other states, particularly in the Midwest, that are being resistant to this national swing. And so this goes back to something that we that people have speculated on throughout this entire campaign cycle is that if there's a pathway to victory for Donald Trump, it's going to go through the Midwest. And now it's going to be very difficult because he's also got to pick up some other states outside the Midwest in order to achieve that victory. But it, again, that that pathway, it most the, the biggest, widest part of the pathway goes through the Midwest. I want to ask you, related to what you just said, some trend questions, two of them. One is Donald Trump on the campaign trail all through the summer after he became the nominee talked about his belief that he was finding new voters, that he was actually turning out at his rallies enthusiastic supporters who he described as new voters. Um, that's my first trend question. Because you just talked about his support in Iowa and Ohio uh, or in the Midwest, is it the case that Donald Trump may be in this early voting in any of this data 
turning out new voters, does registration tell us that these are not just traditional Republicans who would have voted Republican anyway? Are these new supporters? I would say there's no evidence of new voters um, coming in to support Trump. The weakness that um, the Democrats have in the Midwest is really it's best characterized as a weakness. It's their voters not showing up to vote so far. Um, and so it may be a lack of enthusiasm. There's something going on in the Midwest, which is um, uh, uh, keeping Democrats, uh, at, at least at this stage, off on the sidelines of the election. Um, in the Southeast, where we can look at the numbers as well, and in North Carolina is a very good example of this because we've got lots of great data from the state of North Carolina, and we can do all sorts of great analyses in North Carolina. So looking at the data in North Carolina, um, we can see that Democrats are well outperforming their 2012 levels in, early, in the mail balloting so far. Their early voting is just going to start to turn on very soon, so um, we'll, we'll get a really good read um, on the state of the election once that in-person early voting starts. But right now with the mail ballots, Democrats have been, been outperforming um, their 2012 levels. Republicans have not. They've been below their 2012 levels. And that's across the state, but it's particularly acute in the urban areas of um, North Carolina. So I looked at the top 10 population counties, and we could see that it's, it's really those Republicans that live in those um, metropolitan areas that are the ones that are not engaged in this election cycle in North Carolina. So it's, it, in the eastern seaboard, at least, it looks as though, and we can see some similar patterns in, in Florida as in North Carolina and in Virginia, um, it looks as though Democrats are engaged at higher levels than they were in 2012. And Republicans may actually be um, not as at least the same level of engagement or lower levels of engagement um, as 2012. So that if, if there were some hidden Trump supporters out there, it's we're not seeing it. We're not seeing an increase in Republicans. It's where Democrats are disengaged in the Midwest, or they're more engaged in the um, um, in the north in the south, uh, southeastern seaboard, where we're seeing um, the differences in the overall numbers right now. By the way, there are going to be more states that are coming online with early voting, and we're start going to start getting a better read um, uh, as we start seeing numbers come in from places like Colorado and Nevada and see if this is just you know a, a regional effect just in the southeast or if this is something much more broader. The polling numbers would suggest that um, given Clinton's um, movement in the West, that there's something going on very similar in the West as we're seeing in the Southeast seaboard. I wanted to just ask you two more questions, and the next question is another trend question that you've, it's a, a phenomenon you identified. Um, through early voting and the data that you're looking at well before Election Day, you've been able to pick up signs of how voters are reacting to events as they're occurring during the campaigning itself, whether it's a debate perhaps or something that's been in the news related to the candidates. Can you just describe how you begin to get little threads of feelers about how the electorate, and you identified women in particular in certain states, seem to be exercising their interest in early voting related to campaign events? Yeah, so um, there are two states where I have um, uh, individual level data by gender. That's um, for, uh, excuse me, North Carolina and Georgia. And looking at that data, um, I, I, I looked at the number of ballot requests by gender um, since the beginning of the campaign, and there was a noticeable uptick in the percentage of women that were requesting their mail ballots um, in both of those states. 
the week following the first presidential debate. Now, these um, ballot requests would be a, a sort of a um, trailing indicator of interest and activity because people have to put a ballot request into the mail and election officials have to receive it and then they have to do data entry onto that onto the data. So it, it would make sense then that if there was some something, <laughs> I wonder what it could have been yes. that happened in that first debate um, that triggered women to be suddenly more interested in voting. Now here's you know here's the caution on this is that um, yes there was an increase. We could see it in both North Carolina and Georgia. Um, but it was it was only about 5,000 more ballot requests out of both those states um, for the, that week um, following the first debate, um, and then it subsided the following week. And so, um, it, yes, there could be a signal there that women will be more engaged and interested, and you got the first inklings of it in that um, that those absentee ballot requests. But it's not clear to me that that interest and excitement. Um, well, first of all, it's very clear that it's, it's a, that's a small drop in the overall turnout in those states. And it's not clear if that's going to be um, a persistent um, all the way through to Election Day. Okay. Interesting. And my last question is about how early voting has changed the dynamics of campaigns forever. Uh, in this particular case, we are in 2016 are seeing the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee put a high premium on educating its supporters, reaching out, using social media, using rallies, campaign events, emails to, you know, encourage early voting, early registration, et cetera. Uh, can you describe just in general how early voting has changed uh, our presidential politics particularly, but also are we seeing Donald Trump and the Republican National Committee make as much out of this as possible in this particular cycle? Okay, well, <laughs> let me peel off some uh, different parts in a response to that, because there are many ways in which the, um, uh, our politics have changed be due as a consequence of early voting. So um, one is, uh, uh, as you're thinking about the campaign organizations, um, the campaigns now have to be geared to uh, do their voter mobilization activities over a longer period of time, and they need to be also prepared to do voter persuasion and other um, similar sorts of uh, activities um, during the early voting period. They can't wait all the way till the end of election day. And so um, that means like a presidential campaign that's you know, very well prepared and has the resources to, to, do, to create the organizations that they need to do the mobilization, um, they are well prepared to do that. I do sometimes, I, I am concerned about um, the much lower ballot races that don't have the same sorts of um, resources to be engaged as, at the same level as the presidential campaigns. And um, the only good thing I can say so far in preliminary analysis I can see is that roll off from the top of the ballot um, to uh, the um, lower ballot races is actually lower among early voters than it is among election day voters. But I think that has something to do with the characteristics of the early voters. They're people who tend to follow elections much more closely. It's only in that last week or so that you see the more people on the periphery who are showing up and, and voting early. So that could be why. I mean, these are people who are informed and they do follow the lower ballot races as well. Um, but in any case, what the campaigns are doing right now is they're doing their voter mobilization efforts. And a lot of people make a lot of hay, especially on the left, about how 
Um, the Democrats have a much larger organization than the Republicans do. That's uh, a feature <laughs> that's of, uh, and almost a bug, you might say, of the different party coalitions. The Democrats ha um, uh, have a coalition that is uh, younger people, um, minorities tend to be poorer. Um, their, their coalition, more often than not, fits the, the, like, the profile of an unlikely voter, and they need those registration touches, they need those voter mobilization touches. Um, the Republicans, however, more often fit the profile of a likely voter. They tend to be um, wealthier, better educated, um, and, um, and so the Republicans haven't traditionally placed as much emphasis on vo doing voter mobilization. It wasn't really until 2002 that um, Karl Rove created the 72-hour campaign, which means was really designed for voter mobilization the last 72 hours of the election. Um, to uh, to start mimicking what the Democrats were already doing with their voter mobilization efforts. Now, what's interesting here too is that when the Republicans created their efforts, they centralized their efforts within the the RNC. But the Democrats had all had traditionally relied upon outside organizations to do their voter mobilization, particularly labor. And so um, the Democrats have continued to have. That is their model. So they do their voter mobilization outside the DNC. So it's the Clinton campaign that does most of the mobilization. So it's, it's not entirely fair to make a comparison of Clinton can, Clinton's organization to Trump's organization on voter mobilization because the, the Republicans don't do their voter mobilization through the presidential campaign. They do it primarily through the political party. Now that said, though, we can see that the Democrats invest much more in this, and they, in some ways, where their voters live help them with this because they live in urban areas predominantly where um, you can put a brick-and-mortar office uh, or open one up and uh, stage uh, um, voter mobilization uh, drives out of those offices. Um, and so uh, it, uh, you know, it, that just helps them, but, but, and they take advantage of it. They are out there engaged throughout the entire early voting period. Um, early voting has allowed the Democrats to do vote, more voter mobilization throughout the entire early voting period um, to help try and get their low propensity, moderate propensity voters um, to cast their ballot. And once they do, and, and this is both camp, uh, Democrats and Republicans, um, what they do is once they know that a voter has voted and the election officials are sharing that information with the campaigns, um, just like I can see it um, in the data that I'm looking at, the, um, the campaigns scratch those names off the list. They don't contact those voters anymore. Um, that would be a waste of their resources to do any phone calls or mailing to those, those voters. And they start moving down the list into those more difficult people who um, may not be as engaged in the election. So um, voter, early voting has allowed the campaigns to expand their voter mobilization efforts, allowed them to, to, to do more contacts with their, their voters and help them really fine tune as the election goes along who needs yet to be contacted um, in order to uh, get them to the polls. Now it's also changed, as I hinted earlier, about the way in which mobilization happens. So, uh, I mean, persuasion happens. So in that, it, um, messaging has changed. If you have some particularly damning information about your opponent, you can't wait to the very end of the election to, to let that out. Um, there will be people who are moderate to low propensity voters who vote in that last week that you will have missed the opportunity to persuade them about the candidates. So, you, you know, we might have seen, uh, you know, who knows if this if it would have happened, but um, Clinton 
kind of surprised um, Trump in that first debate um, with Mikado. And um, um, it might have been in the past what the Clinton campaign would have done is they would have withheld that information to a later point in time so that we would have had much more uproar and controversy going into that last week of the election. You're talking um, about the beauty about, queen, right? The, you're talking right. about the beauty pageant. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Miss, the Miss Universe that yes. was, um, uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, in any case. Um, so the, the um, so th- these dynamics uh, have changed the messaging, and for good or bad, it, it has done this. And so, um, and I think it, for good um, now, because a lot of people will say, "Hey, look, all these early voters, they should have waited to the very end to cast their ballot." There could even be more information that comes out towards the end that uh, will sway people. And again, my response to that is, look, if anything, um, early voting forces the campaigns to give that information out sooner, and it, it, it allows people to digest that information. It's not going to be a gut reaction that people are making at the very end. And it allows the other campaign um, to make their arguments, and it allows the media to fact-check those claims that are being made by the campaign. So if anything, I think the, the way in which early voting has changed the dynamics of when that October surprise can come out um, means that we have a more informed electorate and allows people to evaluate and weigh the information um, as it factors into their overall vote choice of the candidates. Well, that's the perfect place to end, right? That's the optimistic outlook. Thank you so much, Professor. It's been terrific. Very, very interesting. Uh, My pleasure. Good to be with you.